Chapter fifty one, part one of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume five, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter fifty one. CONQUESTS BY THE ARABS PART One. The revolution of Arabia had not changed the character of the Arabs. The death of Mahomet was the signal of independence, and the hasty structure of his power and religion tottered to its foundations. A small and faithful band of his primitive disciples had listened to his eloquence and shared his distress, had fled with the apostle from the persecution of Mecca, or had received the fugitive in the walls of Medina. The increasing myriads, who acknowledged Mahomet as their king and prophet, had been compelled by his arms, or allured by his prosperity. The polytheists were confounded by the simple idea of a solitary and invisible God. The pride of the Christians and Jews disdained the yoke of a mortal and contemporary legislator. The habits of faith and obedience were not sufficiently confirmed and many of the new converts regretted the venerable antiquity of the law of Moses, or the rites and mysteries of the Catholic Church, or the idols, the sacrifices, the joyous festivals of their pagan ancestors. The jarring interests and hereditary feuds of the Arabian tribes had not yet coalesced in a system of union and subordination, and the barbarians were impatient of the mildest and most salutary laws that curbed their passions or violated their customs. They submitted with reluctance to the religious precepts of the Koran, the abstinence from wine, the fast of the Ramadan, and the daily repetition of five prayers, and the alms and tithes which were collected for the treasury of Medina could be distinguished only by a name from the payment of a perpetual and ignominious tribute. The example of Mahomet had excited a spirit of fanaticism or imposture, and several of his rivals presumed to imitate the conduct and to defy the authority of the living prophet. At the head of the fugitives and auxiliaries, the first caliph was reduced to the cities of Mecca, Medina, and Taif, and perhaps the Koreish would have restored the idols of the Kaaba if their levity had not been checked by a seasonable reproof. Ye men of Mecca, will ye be the last to embrace? and the first to abandon the religion of Islam. After exhorting the Moslems to confide in the aid of God and his apostle, Abu Bekr resolved, by a vigorous attack, to prevent the junction of the rebels. The women and children were safely lodged in the cavities of the mountains. The warriors, marching under eleven banners, diffused the terror of their arms, and the appearance of a military force revived and confirmed the loyalty of the faithful. The inconstant tribes accepted with humble repentance the duties of prayer and fasting and alms, and, after some examples of success and severity, the most daring apostates fell prostrate before the sword of the Lord and of Caled. In the fertile province of Yemenar, between the Red Sea and the Gulf of Persia, in a city not inferior to Medina itself, a powerful chief, his name was Musaylama, had assumed the character of a prophet, and the tribe of Hanifa listened to his voice. A female prophetess was attracted by his reputation. 
the decencies of words and actions, were spurned by these favourites of heaven, and they employed several days in mystic and amorous converse. An obscure sentence of his Koran, or book, is yet extant, and in the pride of his mission Mosailama condescended to offer a partition of the earth. The proposal was answered by Mohammed with contempt, but the rapid progress of the impostor awakened the fears of his successor. Forty thousand Muslims were assembled under the standard of Khaled, and the existence of their faith was resigned to the event of a decisive battle. In the first action they were repulsed by the loss of twelve hundred men, but the skill and perseverance of their general prevailed. Their defeat was avenged by the slaughter of ten thousand infidels, and Mosalama himself was pierced by an Ethiopian slave, with the same javelin which had mortally wounded the uncle of Mohammed. The various rebels of Arabia, without a chief or a cause, were speedily suppressed by the power and discipline of the rising monarchy, and the whole nation again professed, and more steadfastly held, the religion of the Koran. The ambition of the caliphs provided an immediate exercise for the restless spirit of the Saracens. Their valour was united in the prosecution of a holy war, and their enthusiasm was equally confirmed by opposition and victory. From the rapid conquests of the Saracens, a presumption will naturally arise that the caliphs commanded in person the armies of the faithful, and sought the crown of martyrdom in the foremost ranks of the battle. The courage of Abu Bekr, Omar, and Othman had indeed been tried in the persecution and wars of the Prophet, and the personal assurance of Paradise must have taught them to despise the pleasures and dangers of the present world. But they ascended the throne in a venerable or mature age, and esteemed the domestic cares of religion and justice the most important duties of a sovereign. Except the presence of Omar at the siege of Jerusalem, their longest expeditions were the frequent pilgrimage from Medina to Mecca, and they calmly received the tidings of victory as they prayed or preached before the sepulchre of the Prophet. The austere and frugal measure of their lives was the effect of virtue or habit, and the pride of their simplicity insulted the vain magnificence of the kings of the earth. When Abu Bekr assumed the office of caliph, he enjoined his daughter Aisha to take a strict account of his private patrimony that it might be evident whether he were enriched or impoverished by the service of the state. He thought himself entitled to a stipend of three pieces of gold, with the sufficient maintenance of a single camel and a black slave. But on the Friday of each week he distributed the residue of his own and the public money, first to the most worthy, and then to the most indigent of the Muslims. The remains of his wealth, a coarse garment and five pieces of gold, were delivered to his successor, who lamented with a modest sigh his own inability to equal such an admirable model. Yet the abstinence and humility of Omar were not inferior to the virtues of Abu Bekr. His food consisted of barley-bread or dates, his drink was water. He preached in a gown that was torn or tattered in twelve places, and the Persian satrap, who paid his homage to the conqueror, found him asleep among the beggars on the steps of the mosque of Medina. Economy is the source of liberality, and the increase of the revenue enabled Omar to establish a just and perpetual reward for the past and present services of the faithful. Careless of his own emolument, he assigned to Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet, the first and most ample allowance of twenty-five thousand drams or pieces of silver. Five thousand were allotted to each of the aged warriors, 
the relics of the field of Beda, and the last and meanest of the companions of Mohammed was distinguished by the annual reward of three thousand pieces. One thousand was the stipend of the veterans who had fought in the first battles against the Greeks and Persians, and the decreasing pay, as low as fifty pieces of silver, was adapted to the respective merit and seniority of the soldiers of Omar. Under his reign, and that of his predecessor, the conquerors of the East were the trusty servants of God and the people. The mass of the public treasure was consecrated to the expenses of peace and war. A prudent mixture of justice and bounty maintained the discipline of the Saracens, and they united, by a rare felicity, the dispatch and execution of despotism with the equal and frugal maxims of a republican government. The heroic courage of Ali, the consummate prudence of Moawiyah, excited the emulation of their subjects, and the talents which had been exercised in the school of civil discord were more usefully applied to propagate the faith and dominion of the Prophet. In the sloth and vanity of the palace of Damascus, the succeeding princes of the house of Omiya were alike destitute of the qualifications of statesmen and of saints. Yet the spoils of unknown nations were continually laid at the foot of their throne, and the uniform ascent of the Arabian greatness must be ascribed to the spirit of the nation, rather than the abilities of their chiefs. A large deduction must be allowed for the weakness of their enemies. The birth of Mohammed was fortunately placed in the most degenerate and disorderly period of the Persians, the Romans, and the barbarians of Europe. The empires of Trajan, or even of Constantine or Charlemagne, would have repelled the assault of the naked Saracens, and the torrent of fanaticism might have been obscurely lost in the sands of Arabia. In the victorious days of the Roman Republic, it had been the aim of the Senate to confine their councils and legions to a single war, and completely to suppress a first enemy before they provoked the hostilities of a second. These timid maxims of policy were disdained by the magnanimity or enthusiasm of the Arabian caliphs. With the same vigour and success, they invaded the successors of Augustus and those of Artaxerxes, and the rival monarchies at the same instant became the prey of an enemy whom they had been so long accustomed to despise. In the ten years of the administration of Omar, the Saracens reduced to his obedience thirty-six thousand cities or castles, destroyed four thousand churches or temples of the unbelievers, and edified fourteen hundred mosques for the exercise of the religion of Mohammed. One hundred years after his flight from Mecca, the arms and the reign of his successors extended from India to the Atlantic Ocean, over the various and distant provinces, which may be comprised under the names of 1. Persia, 2. Syria, 3. Egypt, 4. Africa, and 5. Spain. Under this general division I shall proceed to unfold these memorable transactions, dispatching with brevity the remote and less interesting conquests of the East, and reserving a fuller narrative for those domestic countries which had been included within the pale of the Roman Empire. Yet I must excuse my own defects, by a just complaint of the blindness and insufficiency of my guides. The Greeks, so loquacious in controversy, have not been anxious to celebrate the triumphs of their enemies. After a century of ignorance, the first annals of the Mussulmans were collected in a great measure from the voice of tradition. 
Among the numerous productions of Arabic and Persian literature, our interpreters have selected the imperfect sketches of a more recent age. The art and genius of history have ever been unknown to the Asiatics. They are ignorant of the laws of criticism, and our monkish chronicle of the same period may be compared to their most popular works, which are never vivified by the spirit of philosophy and freedom. The Oriental Library of a Frenchman would instruct the most learned Mufti of the East, and perhaps the Arabs might not find in a single historian so clear and comprehensive a narrative of their own exploits as that which will be deduced in the ensuing sheets. In the first year of the first caliph, his lieutenant Khalid, the sword of God and the scourge of the infidels, advanced to the banks of the Euphrates, and reduced the cities of Anbar and Hera. Westward of the ruins of Babylon, a tribe of sedentary Arabs had fixed themselves on the verge of the desert, and Hera was the seat of a race of kings who had embraced the Christian religion, and reigned above six hundred years under the shadow of the throne of Persia. The last of the Mondars was defeated and slain by Khalid. His son was sent a captive to Medina. His nobles bowed before the successor of the Prophet. The people were tempted by the example and success of their countrymen, and the Caliph accepted, as the first fruits of foreign conquest, an annual tribute of seventy thousand pieces of gold. The conquerors, and even their historians, were astonished by the dawn of their future greatness. In the same year, says El Masin, Khalid fought many signal battles. An immense multitude of the infidels was slaughtered, and spoils infinite and innumerable were acquired by the victorious Muslims. But the invincible Khalid was soon transferred to the Syrian war. The invasion of the Persian frontier was conducted by less active or less prudent commanders. The Saracens were repulsed with loss in the passage of the Euphrates, and, though they chastised the insolent pursuit of the Magians, their remaining forces still hovered in the desert of Babylon. The indignation and fears of the Persians suspended for a moment their intestine divisions. By the unanimous sentence of the priests and nobles, their queen, Azima, was deposed. The sixth of the transient usurpers, who had arisen and vanished in three or four years since the death of Chosroes and the retreat of Heraclius. Her tiara was placed on the head of Yezdegard, the grandson of Chosroes, and the same era, which coincides with an astronomical period, has recorded the fall of the Sasanian dynasty and the religion of Zoroaster. The youth and inexperience of the prince, he was only fifteen years of age, declined a perilous encounter. The royal standard was delivered into the hands of his general Rustam, and a remnant of thirty thousand irregular troops was swelled in truth, or in opinion, to one hundred and twenty thousand subjects or allies of the great king. The Muslims, whose numbers were reinforced from twelve to thirty thousand, had pitched their camp in the plains of Cadizia, and their line, although it consisted of fewer men, could produce more soldiers than the unwieldy host of the infidels. I shall here observe what I must often repeat, that the charge of the Arabs was not, like that of the Greeks and Romans, the effort of a firm and compact infantry. Their military force was chiefly formed of cavalry and archers, and the engagement, which was often interrupted, and often renewed by single combats and flying skirmishes, might be protracted without any decisive event to the continuance of several days. The periods of the Battle of Cadizia were distinguished by their peculiar appellations. 
the first, from the well-timed appearance of six thousand of the Syrian brethren, was denominated the day of succour. The day of concussion might express the disorder of one, or perhaps of both, of the contending armies. The third, a nocturnal tumult, received the whimsical name of the night of barking, from the discordant clamours, which were compared to the inarticulate sounds of the fiercest animals. The morning of the succeeding day determined the fate of Persia, and a seasonable whirlwind drove a cloud of dust against the faces of the unbelievers. The clangour of arms was re-echoed to the tent of Rustum, who, far unlike the ancient hero of his name, was gently reclining in a cool and tranquil shade, amidst the baggage of his camp, and the train of mules that were laden with gold and silver. On the sound of danger he started from his couch, but his flight was overtaken by a valiant Arab, who caught him by the foot, struck off his head, hoisted it on a lance, and instantly returning to the field of battle, carried slaughter and dismay among the thickest ranks of the Persians. The Saracens confess a loss of seven thousand five hundred men, and the battle of Cadesia is justly described by the epithets of obstinate and atrocious. The standard of the monarchy was overthrown and captured in the field, a leathern apron of a blacksmith, who in ancient times had arisen the deliverer of Persia. But this badge of heroic poverty was disguised, and almost concealed, by a profusion of precious gems. After this victory, the wealthy province of Iraq, or Assyria, submitted to the caliph, and his conquests were firmly established by the speedy foundation of Bassora, a place which ever commands the trade and navigation of the Persians. As the distance of fourscore miles from the gulf, the Euphrates and Tigris unite in a broad and direct current, which is aptly styled the River of the Arabs. In the midway, between the junction and the mouth of these famous streams, the new settlement was planted on the western bank. The first colony was composed of eight hundred Muslims, but the influence of the situation soon reared a flourishing and populous capital. The air, although excessively hot, is pure and healthy. The meadows are filled with palm-trees and cattle, and one of the adjacent valleys has been celebrated among the four paradises or gardens of Asia. Under the first caliphs, the jurisdiction of this Arabian colony extended over the southern provinces of Persia. The city has been sanctified by the tombs of the companions and martyrs, and the vessels of Europe still frequent the port of Bassora as a convenient station and passage of the Indian trade. End of chapter 51, part 1